every time I'm preaching, I have a dream that I stand up here on Sunday and I don't have anything to say. It's like the no clothes on dream or something. I have on clothes, but I just have no sermon. Today was the closest I've come to that because I woke up at 7.37 in a start like, where am I supposed to be? I was supposed to be at church. But I've settled in. I've made it. I have a sermon and I have on clothes. Praise be to God. <laughs> it's a holiday weekend, so you might, you might be hoping that that was all I had to say and I would sit down, but I hate to disappoint you. I have a little more to go. This week, like me, you've probably been inundated with pictures and stories from the destruction caused by Hurricane Harvey. These stories have been heartbreaking. People have lost their lives. Those closest to them have lost their loved ones. Other people have lost their homes and all of the things that they feel like they've worked their whole lives for. We've sought ways that we can be helpful. Some of us have donated money. Others have donated goods, clothes, maybe bedding. Some of us will stay after church today and assemble kits for the United Methodist Committee on Relief. They're going to donate these kits to victims of the hurricane. The images that we saw were so compelling. Perhaps you saw that picture of the elderly people being up to, in water up to their chests in the nursing home. We've seen pictures of volunteers going out trying to rescue their others, a policeman who died trying to help other people. And our compassion is stirred when we think of the innocent people who lost so much. In these moments, we can recognize that it's our Christian duty to respond to people who are in need. How do we respond, however, when people aren't so innocent? What do we do when people have maliciously harmed us? What do we say to those who set out to destroy our happiness? What do we say to the thief who has stolen all that we have worked for? In the years since 9-11, how often have we prayed for those who crashed planes into the Pentagon and the World Trade Center? How often do we pray for Boko Haram, who kidnapped over 300 girls from their Nigerian school? Love and compassion aren't so easy in those cases. Theologian Rochelle Stackhouse says about the text from Romans, few of us would argue with Paul's exhortation to hate evil, to persevere in prayer, to celebrate with the joyful, or to weep with the grieving. The complicated part of this text in Romans concerns our relationship to those whom we find hard to love. This difficulty isn't new. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his followers to, to turn the other cheek. He said, if someone asks for your coat, give them your cloak as well. If someone forces you to walk one mile, go two. And in another instance in the Bible, when a law expert said, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. He made the point that our neighbors are sometimes the people that we despise. And here in the 12th chapter of Romans, Paul continues in this spirit. Paul tells the church at Rome that they are to bless those who persecute them. And he goes on to say that they should not repay evil for evil. 
If you find those words challenging, trust that you are not alone. Some of us might be naturally inclined toward vengeance. Even if that isn't our natural inclination, we live in a society that promotes retributive justice. We are constantly being given messages that tell us to seek revenge. You're looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you can't wait for the next episode of Power so you can see what Ghost will do when he finds out his daughter is dead. Maybe that's not your show. Maybe you're a fan of Game of Thrones. What is Daenerys going to do when she realizes her dragon has been turned into a White Walker? If you're a House of Cards fan, you're wondering when are Frank and Claire Underwood finally going to get what's coming to them? When will there be justice? We live in a world that tells us, get justice. But what we often mean is we want vengeance in disguise. It's one thing to turn the other cheek when it's something minor. Maybe when a colleague has said something shady about us. But what do we do when the person that you've trusted with your retirement money steals your account? You're left broke, unsure of what to do. What do you say to the spouse who's had an indiscretion and is asking for forgiveness? What do you do when your loved one is killed by a person texting on the phone? I wish I could stand up here and tell you that I never want revenge. I'm so Christian and so holy that I always do the right thing. But that's not true. Sometimes I want revenge. And sometimes it's not even over big stuff. If I'm honest, I'm just kind of petty. When someone cuts me off at the red light, I'm going to pull up beside them and tell them about themselves. And then I'm going to cut them off at the next light. I want an eye for an eye. I want a tooth for a tooth. But I only want that when it's someone who's hurt me. When I've hurt someone, when I've offended someone, when I make a mistake, I don't really want justice. I want mercy. I want somebody to give me another chance. That's where grace steps in. The Bible says that we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us, each and every one of us, have done something wrong. Perhaps it was unintentional. Perhaps it was intentional. We've messed up, we've made mistakes, we've sinned, and we'll do it again. No matter how much we try to do right, we are human. We all find ourselves in need of God's grace. And God gives it to us over and over and over again. What Paul writes in Romans does not teach us that people's actions don't matter. Paul isn't saying that your hurts aren't valid. He's not saying it's okay for people to mistreat us. What Paul is teaching here is that we are called to love others, to share God's grace with them, even when we don't want to. When we'd rather throw people away, when we'd rather dismiss them as troublemakers and say that they'll never amount to anything, God calls us to love them anyway. And not just to love from afar, but to reach out to them and to treat them with love and kindness and to serve them as we would a friend. 
The truth is, we have to give it our all. Love, kindness, generosity. But there's a verse in this passage that I've liked for a long time. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I try to live by those words, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you. But if I'm honest, I often put more emphasis on if than depends on you. Because for me, if says, hey man, I did my part, it's on them, okay, cool, I'm cool. But it means that as far as it depends on me, that maybe this text is saying that my part is more than what I thought it was. That I have to give and give and give. That's what we are called to do. And sometimes situations won't change. We are not in control. The serenity prayer, we often hear, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Sometimes we underestimate how much our work can make the world a better place. We need the wisdom to know, as Kenny Rogers said, when to hold them and know when to fold them. But sometimes we fold them a little bit too soon. I'm reminded of a scene in the book Les Miserables. I don't speak French well, so y'all bear with me. But when Jean Valjean is caught after stealing silver from the church, police officers catch him and they bring him back to the church. They expect the priest to identify him and to have him convicted for a crime. But when they bring him to the church, the bishop, he identifies him. And instead of saying, oh, you stole our silver, he says, ah, here you are. I'm glad to see you. How is it? I gave you the candlesticks, too, which are of silver like the rest, and you can certainly get 200 francs. Why didn't you carry them away with your forks and spoons? John is stunned. He, he doesn't know how to respond. He's expecting that somebody will absolutely get him back for the crime he did. He wasn't expecting this kind of grace. The bishop gave him what is called a hermeneutic of generosity. Your hermeneutic is how you view the world and what you bring, how you interpret what's happening. When I was in seminary, we often talked about a hermeneutic of suspicion. Young seminarians are often eager to pick apart the biblical text. This is wrong and that's wrong and we shouldn't read this and we shouldn't read that. They didn't know what they were talking about. Some of us approach the world with that same hermeneutic of suspicion. You must have done that to me on purpose. You must have it out for me. Nobody's on my side. Who's going to support me if I don't take care of myself? But here we see a hermeneutic of generosity, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there's a reason behind her action that I just don't understand. Huh, I can't figure out why somebody would do that, but maybe, maybe I'll understand it in due time. How much different would we feel about events if we had a hermeneutic of generosity? I know. We don't want to feel like suckers. We don't want to feel like we're letting people take advantage of us. But is it letting people take advantage when you know what you're doing, when you know what you're giving? It's giving people another chance. In this book, Jean went on to become a prosperous member of the community. He owned a business 
and he was able to give back and he didn't forget about the grace that was given to him. He helped others. He even risked his own life to be of service to others. That is the kind of grace that we're giving and we can share. Now, I see some of you looking at me with these crazy faces like, we live in a world where we're under the threat of nuclear war and we see racism being spread in a new and seemingly more vicious way than we have in recent years and we're always being afraid of crimes and anything can happen to us anytime. Are you telling us we just to ignore that? I'm not. Our work is to create a better place for the world, to spread love, to do our best to create a just society. But we also recognize that revenge and judgment is not our role. The Bible, this text says that vengeance is God's. God is the judge of us all. If vengeance is necessary, then we leave that with God. God knows our hurts. God knows our pains. God knows our frustrations. God knows our anger. But God can see all parts of a situation. Sometimes we only see a narrow part of the situation. I think about Moses from our Old Testament reading. Moses went on to become a great leader of the Israelite community. But Moses was a murderer. What what if God had cut him off then? Someone who had killed another person out of anger and what some might say a good reason. But still, God used him. That might have been difficult for the family of those that Moses killed. We don't know what God is doing. A mentor of mine who's known me for a long time, we had lunch a few months ago, and that mentor said, wow, Leslie, I couldn't have expected that God would do all of this in your life. I had some BC days, some before Christ days. I haven't always been the person that's standing in front of you today trying my hardest on this Christian walk. Now, vengeance is God. So does that mean we sit back with our arms folded and we're waiting like God is going to get you? No, that's not the spirit of this text. Rather, it's that we trust God with all of those feelings and all of that hurt and all that we have, trusting that God will do with it what needs to be done. I know it's difficult. It was difficult for Jesus to follow his path. In the gospel reading we heard, Jesus was preparing himself and his disciples. He was on his way to Jerusalem to die. And Peter, one of his close friends, someone who might be considered family, said to him, God forbid it. You can't do that, Jesus. You can't go die. You can't let this happen. Jesus responded in a way that seemed surprising. Get behind me, Satan. He's not calling Peter Satan, but he's saying, Peter, this is the will of God. You have to allow me to do what needs to be done, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Similarly, when we're trying to live on the right path and live this Christian way and walk this walk, there will be people who try to tell us something different. Sometimes there are people who are close to us, people who love us, people who are well-meaning. They might even be Christians themselves. They might say, you should listen to your heart, or are you really going to let that go? And you know what she did to you the last time. But we aren't always called to act out of emotion. Earlier in this text, Paul writes, 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That means that we have a new way that we think. I'm a hothead. Sometimes somebody does something to me and I want to retaliate right away. I have to take a step back. How do I think about this in a new way? It's not easy. Two years ago, on this weekend, my brother was killed in an accident. Somebody who was on the phone. It would have been easy for us to say, throw the book at this person. Our brother is gone. He doesn't deserve his freedom. And it took us a lot of conversations to think about what we wanted for this person. It's not easy. But we don't know what God is doing in his life. And no matter what we do, nothing will bring my brother back. So how can I extend the same grace to this person that God has extended to me? How do I recognize that it could have been me? I could be on the other end of that. It's not easy. It takes time. I'm not saying it'll get there instantaneously. But this text is asking us to wrestle. That this is what we aspire to. This is what we try to live into. And we can't always listening to the people who are saying, well, you should get this person back. You should respond this way. How is God calling us to live? Sometimes we won't see the result of our work. We don't know how things turn out. It might seem like evil has won. But Steve often stands here and says, God will have the day. And we have to trust that. That even when we don't see how things will work out, God will have the day. I think about a story from Ella Cara Deloria's book, Water Lily. Deloria was a Native American author and anthropologist. And in her book, she talks about an instance of bringing of reconciliation in her tribe. There was a young man in the tribe who murdered someone. Naturally, his relatives and his friends were angry, enraged. They wanted revenge. One of the elderly men in the tribe listened to them, and after listening to them, he said, there's a different way. It's more difficult, but it's the better way. Go and get something that's important to you, and we will bring gifts to this murderer. And we will give this murderer the honor that our loved one had. And we will make this person our kin. Can you imagine how difficult that is? The higher way often is. As I said before, it's not easy. But what is right? In time, they did just that. They welcomed this person into their tribe. They gave him these gifts. And this murderer was filled with hope and love and began to weep. And the person said, this person would understand to not do something again because of the high price of his redemption. We too had a high price for our redemption. But Jesus gave his life so that we could live a better way, a more excellent way. He submitted himself to death. He submitted himself to torture. He submitted himself in love. And if he would do that for us, then what can we give to each other?